Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Danger Room, the X-Men Comics Commentary Podcast. My name's Adam. And my name is Jeremy. We are here to talk about, well, three graphic novels. And uh, we're going to do this a little different. This is trying something new, see how it goes. We're going to talk about Excalibur Moho, Mo, Moho, Mojo Mayhem, Wolverine Jungle Adventure, and Wolverine Nick Fury in the Scorpio Connection. This week on The Danger Room. Boom, boom, boom. So Excalibur Mojo Mayhem I bought back in the day, originally off of the comic book shelf. Uh, it was weird. It was random. I mean, I mean, it was probably promoted within the pages of uh, various Marvel publications, but the only way I was aware of its existence was to go to the comic shop and see like this, what was it, four ninety five or however much it cost, uh, uh, sort of prestige format book sitting on the shelf. It wasn't an annual, and I feel like, I don't know what issue of Excalibur we're on, but we're not like on issue 12 or 24, like an annualized version. So it's just like, oh, here's a random Excalibur comic, and it's got Mojo, who's a char- who's a cool character, and on the cover you've got the X-Babies, who everybody loves the X-Babies from X-Men Annual number 10. And the art's by Art Adams. Right? And I didn't even know who Art Adams was at the time. All I knew is that I really liked the artwork. So according to the Excalibur Epic Collection, Excalibur Mojo Mayhem occurs between pages 17 and 18 of Excalibur 11. Oh, man. What happened in Excalibur? (laughs) Was Excalibur number 11 where Kitty is naked in front of Alistar or what's-his-face? Yes. Ah, okay. So we just covered that like last week, a couple weeks ago. So pages 11 and uh, or 17 and 18 are where she's trying to figure out how to make Widget work. Makes sense because there's a couple of pages in here where she's like, I don't know how to do this. And Widget drops on the floor and starts eating stuff. Mm-hmm. And then in the next panel, it says, later still, the north of England. And that's when she meets up with the rest of Excalibur. And the they they they're gonna send they discover the dragon inside of the Nazi train. Oh, okay. <laughs> Which is a very random sentence, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's that's it just sounds completely random. I'm so glad we talked about all of those things on the last episode of the Danger Room, the X Men Comics Commentary Podcast. Otherwise, so, people would be like, I don't know what Dragon Engine. What are you talking about? So I don't know if I buy the fact that this really does occur between those spaces. I feel like they're just putting that to give it some sort of chrono- chronological feel. But honestly, I, I don't think it matters. I honestly don't either. This is uh, this issue is a fun issue. It's uh, it fills every single page with excellent art. Art Adams uh, artwork. The story never feels like it's filling pages. And to me, this is like. This is one of those things like after you've established a brand, like you can just do a weird one shot like this. And it doesn't matter really like where in continuity it takes place. Right, right. Uh, now, that being said, there are some connective uh, pieces here. Like we're we're continuing to follow the story of Ricochet Rita. Now, one of our fans had reached out to us and said that, spoilers, Ricochet Rita is spiral. Mm. Now, we haven't got to that point. And we were kind of speculating about whether or not that's happened or mm-hmm. that will happen. This this issue actually kind of makes it feel like that was not the intention. I agree because there's a there's a blurb where Mojo's like, oh, that spiral. She left me. Is that what you're referring to? And then Rikishita is just like there is like the ex-baby's babysitter. 
So the implication that I noted was that Ricochet Rita got sent to Spiral's body shop. Yep. Where Ricochet Rita then gets rebuilt as the villain of this story. Um, does the villain even have a name? Yeah. Guess, oh, yeah, the agent or something like that. That was uh, a little... I remembered that from when I was a kid. So uh, as you're reading this issue, and even on the cover of this comic book, there's this character who's who's large and he's, he's all blacky. I think they're trying to go for like a Darth Vader motif. Um, and and throughout the issue, I guess you're not necessarily wondering like who this character is, but he's he's the nemesis of this like Mojo, or I guess it's Major Domo conjures up this character, the agent, to go collect all of the ex babies because Mojo wants to retain their services for his motion pictures, of course, right? He wants their contracts, right? And so throughout, I guess what at at the end, right? It is revealed that that it's Ricochet Rita, but I guess I don't know where she, does she go to the body shop in this issue or is it just inferred? You never actually see it, but they mention it. They say somewhere that um, she, she went to the body shop and this is what spiral made. And I think you kind of have to piece it together. It feels um, like it because I recall, um, Mojo saying like, oh, I should never have let Spiral have that body shop. And that's like the only reference to the body shop that I recall. Right. I I think uh, that is is the first one. And I think that's the first time that we meet the agent. Yeah. Yeah. Shortly thereafter. And it is it is implied somewhere that the agent came out of the body shop. I should have I should have taken notes. <laughs> there is a uh, full not to change topics entirely, but there's a full page spread on I don't know page nine or ten where they have Secret Wars Crisis, Secret Wars Two, Invasion, Atlantis Attacks, Legends, and it's like this giant building and the X Babies running away from Mojo and and trying to escape the Mojo verse with Ricochet Reader, and they're like, let's go over there, and I. I think it's neat that it has all those references, but I wonder, was this like a funny lampoon back in the day? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's like, you know, these are the events and this is the, this is the building that takes you to each of those different events. And it's, it's kind of a not very serious sort of thing. And then the, uh, when they go to the world that we're familiar with, it's a doorway called the house of Jack and Stan. Yep. Which was a neat little touch. like, And I feel like somewhere in there, they're like, that's where everything comes from or something like that. Yeah. Which was, uh, was kind of a nice homage to those two two creators. And I guess I kind of lost track as to where we lose Ricochet Rita. So all the when they go through the doorway to Jack and Stan land, yep. um, the X-Babies come out the other side, but that's where we never we don't see Ricochet Rita uh, again, the next we see the agent and Mojo says, uh, most impressive major domo and on such short notice too. So he has the, or she, I guess has just been created, uh, in spirals body shop. And, uh, and then we don't see Ricochet Rita until the end where we find out that Ricochet Rita is the agent. So what I think about what, what I think is really clever about 
that portion of the story is as they run into the house of Jack and Stan, like you don't see the ex babies for a good seven, eight or nine pages. Uh, and in between you, you see all the mojo stuff, major domo, minor domo. And then we get the introduction of the agent. And then we see Kitty on a train. Like a lot of story occurs. And then we see the ex babies again. And by that time, at least me, I feel like the story was constructed so that you would have forgotten about Ricochet Rita. Because I honestly, I've read this thing like four or five times in my lifetime. Once again, I was like, oh, shoot. <laughs> I was surprised <laughs> by the ending. I was like, it got me. Congratulations, story. Yeah, it's a well-constructed story. I mean, it, it works the way that a story should. It takes you to this portion of the story, which is important and leads you back to the original. You know, it 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 kind of winds its way around the story, but eventually connects to the story that it's intending to tell. It's, it's, it's good. Yeah. So Kitty is, and we get kind of like a back and forth. Like we start on the train where she's just gotten done uh, at a rock concert. And then we flash back to the lighthouse where she's like, I'm sick of working on widget. I can't figure this thing out, which is in between the pages of what? 17 and 18. Like you said, uh, and she's like, I got to go to this rock concert. And Captain Britain, he's like, you can't. We've got Excalibur responsibilities. But Nightcrawler, who's an upstanding guy, is like, that's Katie Pride. Do you know who she is? <laughs> She's super responsible. Let her go. And so she does. And these are all done in kind of like these flashbacks as Kitty is on the train. There is like a weird moment where like she, if she doesn't concentrate, she loses her phasing ability or, or she loses her she 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 is not solid because she's she's still in that weird phasing sort of state yep that goes back to um the mutant massacre where she got attacked and then x-men versus fantastic four so her natural state is to be intangible so she has to concentrate to be tangible uh and that was due to the efforts of Reed Richards to at least give her that element of control. Which I, I, you know, it's great. But what happens when she falls asleep? That's what I want to know. Well, and they they more or less kind of allude to it. Like, she kind of thinks about all of these things that are going on in her life. She flashes back to uh, the Excalibur Lighthouse. And as she's kind of daydreaming, she loses control of her tangibility and falls through her um room and the train whatever you call it the private private room that she's got and she's like oh by the way comic book readers my natural state's intangible this is going to be a plot point you got to pay attention to this so can kenny pride never sleep again well i think like if she's sleeping in a non-moving vehicle she's probably okay <laughs> but she's gonna sink through the bed well that's a great question right like so is if she's intangible does she have weight and therefore does gravity pull her down or can she fall asleep and just kind of like hover within the sheets? So the same way that she takes the stairs, intangible stairs, mm -hmm. perhaps she sleeps in an intangible bed. Okay, I can buy that. Yeah, and in fact, they kind of go through the whole momentum of this train and her intangible state a little later on, which kind of leads to the entire adventure. But apparently she's like, she's friends with this band. The band's called Cats Laughing. She just goes to, she's like super brave, right? She's like 15 years old and she goes to big city and dances at this club and she knows like all these band members. She's not just dancing at the club. She's dancing on stage with the band. Well, that's a good point. And they're even like, you should come with us. Like we always do better shows when 
Like, we don't need you to play an instrument or sing. We just need you to be at our show and we'll pay you. <laughs> and she's like, nah, I, I got responsibilities. I got to go. Yeah. It's a, it's a funny touch. It's, uh, I, and I wonder, knowing Chris Claremont, like, is this a reference to something? Is there a band called Cats Laughing? Oh, well, sure. Who knows? I didn't well, look it up. He he was like a New York mainstay, right? So who knows? There was probably a small indie band in New York in 1989 called Cats Laughing that he would go see at the coffee shops in Greenwich Village. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like those words work together even though I know nothing of what I just said. That's fine. I thought it was great. <laughs> Thanks. So, yeah, so she, she had the time of her life. She gets on this train. She did that little phasing thing. And then all of a sudden, the ex-babies show up in her little car that she's in, in the train. And uh, she freaks out. And that's when she goes intangible. And, I mean, for the story purpose, this is fine. But I don't feel like it would work this way. When she phases, like, the train moves through her and she stays where she was. Well, this is where she's, she's sleeping on her. She's sitting on her intangible bed. So the intangible bed that she's sitting on isn't moving, but the train is still moving. So she is in one spot and the train is moving out from beneath her. I mean, it's fine. It makes for a really good sequence, but I spent a road trip when I was a kid, like flipping a penny in a moving car. Because I was like, it doesn't make any sense. When I flip this penny, it should like go shooting straight to the back window, but it didn't. It just went up and then it went down. I feel like an intent, like an object in motion, will remain in motion until acted upon another force. I feel like Kitty, phased or unfazed, would continue moving with the train. But either way, it doesn't matter. It's a, it's a good sequence as she's like phasing. She's staying in the same place as the train phases or goes through her phased body. So we see like all these couples like kissing and some guy reading the newspaper and another couple that are like oh we're naked don't look at us it's hard to really say without knowing the physics of phasing right it, it is a superhero universe so anything goes but yeah anyway get what you're saying though it gets the plot moving she's outside of the train she's in her underwear she's got her cat's laughing shirt on what's she gonna do next yeah she's gonna dress up in various bits of the uh the ex-baby's clothing for some reason, which, you know, I'm staring at this outfit that she puts together and I can't figure out what comes from where. Well, the jacket is from Storm. The belt is from Colossus. The skirt is from Psylocke, question mark? Yeah, the jacket and the skirt and all the stuff are, are from, you can tell which characters they're from, but if you flip back a page, they're not wearing any of those items. Yeah. That's it true. doesn't make any sense, like, which is fine. Storm still has a jacket, even though Kitty's wearing that jacket. And I feel like Colossus right. is still wearing a belt, even though Kitty's wearing the belt. And where the Psylocke thing comes from, I don't know. Yeah. Well, and she also says, thank heavens for unstable molecules, i.e. they fit on babies and they fit on me because unstable molecules. Right. The answer to everything Marvel. Yep. Which is fine. Uh, Wolverine throughout the entire issue is he's a little scamp, always causing trouble. I like how Art Adams draws them all as kind of fat kids. Yeah, I mean they're they're not fat; they're they're just kind of chubby, like little kids are. Yeah, chubby little kids. It's great. It's 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 cute. It's good. Yeah, it's an excellent little touch. So throughout the issue, they keep encountering this agent in various disguises, and the agent keeps getting them all to sign a contract 
through various schemes and means. And every time an ex-baby signs the contract, which they don't realize is the contract when they're signing it, uh, he he steals their powers and they disappear, I guess, into him. All throughout the issue as well, Kitty, I mean, we've already established she's having troubles keeping herself constituted as a physical being. Uh, she has developed a cold, I guess, because as she phased through the train and solidified, she landed in the river and caught a cold. So now every time she sneezes, her phased body kind of expands outwards and she's got to like focus on like re- pulling those molecules all back. That's an important plot point. Is it? Because I, I can't remember. Did that, <laughs> did that go anywhere? Uh, I feel like there's one scene where it kind of may have made a difference, but she sneezes at least three or four times and you see her like blow out of her body. And like, oh, I got to pull my body back. I kept waiting for it to matter and it never really did. I feel like it kind of sort of mattered towards the end, but it was never like, oh, Kitty's discorporated. What are we going to do? We have to solve this problem. Or like some sort of thing where she was like, oh, I sneezed and that in, uh, somehow saved the day. Yeah, no, no, that's true. No, that ever comes into play. Uh, there is a moment where the so I think when at, when the comic starts, the ex babies are in their classic uniforms. But I think when they go through that portal, they go into their kind of newfangled 89 slash 90 costumes. Yes. Yeah. So that that was fun. They have to modernize. Yeah. Yeah. So the agent, uh, he's definitely disguising himself as various uh, uh, people in in England and fooling the ex-babies into signing pieces of paper and capturing their their, sig- uh, their signatures to, to give them their rights back to Mojo, but absorbing their powers as well. Uh, and it's every couple of pages. Um, and again, it's ex-babies, so there's all sorts of little funny dialogues of like, I got to go to the bathroom and I'm telling and... All that sort of stuff. It's a good time. It's a weird cameo by the woman that uh, Nightcrawler was briefly hanging out with who turned out to be like a princess when he was on that weird like spy mission. Yes. I can't remember her name, but at the end of that issue. Judith Razendil. Yeah. At the end is issue number 204, if I'm not mistaken. It's I think it's 204 through 206. Uh, she, she go, he goes, Nightcrawler goes through an adventure with Judith. I think it's arcade. I think it's, um, um, uh, what do you call that? Uh, uh, doesn't he have a name for his little land that he has? Murder world? Murder world. Yes. Don't they go through murder world? I think so. Yeah. She's in one of those murder world balls. Yeah. And then at the end of the issue, uh, he's like, oh, I, I could really see myself with her. But then they're like, oh, your majesty, your bags are ready. Princess. It turns out Judith. she's a princess. Yeah. And so this and is, it wasn't meant to be. And I feel like this is maybe just tying up that loose end because at the end of that issue, you kind of feel like, oh, well, maybe maybe Chris Claremont's going to do something with this whole Princess Judith and Nightcrawler's dating that sorceress woman, whatever her name was. So was that Amanda Sefton? Yes. And then they never did anything really with either character, if I recall. So I think this is like the the Chris Claremont pocket syndrome. He stuffs things in his pockets, and then sometimes he'll pull them out, and they may or may never matter. Yes, I agree. And, and this is a this is a thing. He was like, "Well, I'm going to bring out this character from my pocket, and I'm going to have them be in this issue. It doesn't really matter, but it's a nice 
little nice, kind of uh, nice touch. cameo. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there is a cameo by Chris Claremont and Nascenti, maybe, and two other guys. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. They're on their way to a Comic-Con or something. These are major comic book creators on their way to an important signing. And apparently they had to have such a large vehicle because of all of Claremont's luggage. Yeah. It's good <laughs> stuff. Why are you all looking at me? Gotta blame someone, love, under the circumstance, considering the characters. Wah, wah, uh, wah. And so who do you think these other two, the two dudes are? Well, they mentioned their names at some point. One of um, them has to be whoever's editing this book. So I guess I don't know who that would be at this point. And Lord knows I'm not going to flip back in this issue to find out. Let's see what the internet has to say. It's not Jim Shooter because both these guys are blonde. Jim Shooter's gone at this point. Exactly. Tom DeFalco's the, the editor-in-chief now. One of these guys must be Tom DeFalco then. It could be. But I, I, why would Tom DeFalco be on this trip? I don't know. Important comic book signing in English. I'm going to say definitely in Nascenti mm-hmm. or or Louise Simonson. Right. Well, I mean, you have a 50-50 shot of, be, of being correct there. Well, Louise, uh, Anna Senti was the uh, motivation for Ricochet Rita, right? Does Do any of them look like Ricochet Rita? Uh, the, the woman who is the comic book creator has brown hair and Ricochet okay. Rita has like really dark brown hair. So okay. maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Do any of these characters have names? That could help us. Mm, you'd f- no, no. One of them. Well, actually, they're both blonde and have beards, except one is tall and has glasses. <laughs> and the only name I think I see here are Claremont's bags wouldn't fit into my Ferrari, says the woman. Hmm. Interesting. Eh, the uh, the the internet is not helpful. Uh, was Art Adams blonde? I don't know. Uh, didn't I, I want to say he looks like Longshot, but that can't be true. <laughs> that would be amazing. I don't know. Yeah. Doesn't the matter. internet only has Chris Claremont listed. Nobody else. You, you Google a picture real quick of uh, of uh, Art Adams. Tell me what he looks like. Okay. <laughs> it's going to be a black and white headshot. I just know it. I bet he's got a great color photo on his Wikipedia page, and he's probably... He's probably very old. It's it's tough finding young pictures. Yeah, he's bald in this photo, mm. um, and he's fifty six years old. So, I I, I don't know. Well, that's not going to help. Yeah, all it's right. not going to help at all. Well, anyways, it doesn't matter. He's um, got a beard. Both of these guys have have a beard. It doesn't matter. Uh, the agent eventually slurps up all of the. Uh, signatures from all of these X-Men eventually leaving Kitty and I don't know who's left Kitty and Longshot I believe Storm and Longshot are the last two ones that remain earlier and that's this is where uh, what's her name Uh, uh, Nightcrawler's girlfriend comes into play Uh, Megan was like oh there's going to be a royal wedding well not like uh, an English royal wedding but like some other country's royal wedding and it's going to be amazing and we're going to watch it so Kitty's big idea is as soon as they make it to uh, London I guess uh, she phases into the royal wedding with a sign that says Excalibur emergency help but then she's like ah darn it Megan can't read which is kind of weird, but well, okay. What am I going to do? 
and they do they they do make a deal out of Megan not being able to read in the pages of Excalibur. I don't I don't know why they didn't decide to teach her how to read. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it's about time. <laughs> it seems like an important skill to have, but I don't know. Maybe she can't functionally comprehend the characters that are letters due to her alien <laughs> physiology. Maybe. Yeah. But the agent, he's the cathedral, he's the he's the chapel, he's the guy that's marrying everybody. And so he pulls off his mask and he's yeah, he's everywhere. And finally, Excalibur does show up because this is an Excalibur graphic novel after all. And uh, pretty much about a page goes by and they finish the story. Um, Kitty grabs the contracts and is able to phase the signatures out of the contracts, which is kind of clever. Totally clever. Love it. And then and the uh, X-Men, the X-Babies then uh, emerge outside of the agent. Yeah. And that's when we get the reveal that the agent is Ricochet Rita. Well, I want to draw your attention to the page before that revelation where we get two amazing drawings of the agent's uh, boot prints. <laughs> it's a, like Art Adams had to sit down with like a pair of boots and draw all of those tractions and treads because you don't make that up. <laughs> that That came like you could probably trace that back to a brand of boots in 1989. It could be. They're amazingly detailed. Like, I feel like any other artist would have just drawn, like, flat boots. But this well, has... Rob Liefeld would have just drawn, like, no <laughs> little, boots. Little triangles. <laughs> yeah. It, they're, they're really good. They're really good boots. Probably the best boots I've ever seen in a comic book. This, uh, this agent design screams the 90s. This is like... We're seeing the pre-90s right here. Big shoulder pads. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. I like this agent design for the most part. It's kind of like a cross between Terminator and some sort of alien sort of thing. And it's Rachel who deduces what's happening here. And so she goes to pull out the real psyche of the agent. And Kitty's like, no, don't kill him. Like, we're just supposed to teach him a lesson. And Phoenix is like, no, no, no. It's Ricochet Rita. Look, boom, there she is. But Ricochet Rita is still somehow... uh owned, I guess, by Mojo because he has her contract. So he's able to put his head on top of her. And the ex-babies make a deal that they will go back to Mojo World if he releases Ricochet Rita, which he does, and they do. He finally agrees. He's like, well, the value of these ex-babies far outweighs Ricochet Rita. So he burns up the contract. Ricochet Rita's free. She kind of collapses into Captain Britain. And the ex-babies are like, see ya, off we go, into the portal. And Ricochet Rita says, are you nuts? What have you done, my kids? And she jumps into the portal, too. Yep. Which kind of makes this story like, like, did we really achieve anything? But we do get a comedic ending where Mojo's like, yeah, I got them. But then the ex-babies are like, we want rights and merchandising. And They said, we'll come back, but they didn't say they would sign a contract, so... Uh, they're working with him, but now it's on their terms. They, they've they learned the art of negotiation. And Ricochet, Ricochet Rita is now their agent. Yes. And uh, Mojo reluctantly agrees. And at the very end, he's like, help. <laughs> so it's a good okay, issue. Yeah. That's a good close-up of uh, 
mojo. Yeah. Looks funny. It's fun. It's a, it's a good old fun time. This was a fun issue, and I was happy to purchase it. I liked this uh, issue. It's the same format, the same binding, and the same cost as the original Excalibur graphic novel, and I much preferred this one over that one. Uh, why is that? I, it's more fun. The I, it, It's more engaging. I never really cared about the the whole gatekeeper and her weird band of, I don't know, characters. Okay. So you just like the ex-babies. I, yeah, this is a fun issue. It's a fun, it quick fun. read. It's 48 pages, but you wouldn't know it because they go by so quickly. How many times can we fit fun into one description? <laughs> I, I don't know. A lot, but people might get turned off. So Wolverine and Nick Fury, the Scorpio connection is... Uh, so the, the the cool thing about these three graphic novels is that they all have very different art styles, but they're all very good art styles. And I feel like this one was done by Howard Chaikin. And after, like reading this, Howard Chaikin is like the connection between today's art and like Jack Kirby art. He's this weird sort of in between modern and, and past art. And I really like it. It's very, it's very stylish. It's not, your typical art, it's, it's got a lot of lines. The colors in this thing are amazing. He really enjoys, like, stark red um, panels. Uh, yeah, there's stark red, there's black and white, there's blue. I mean, like, there's diff- just different color palettes based on where they are. The thing that I thought was uh, very different about this is usually when I'm reading comics, you know, we get to the and they fight parts, and it's just kind of a blur. Mm-hmm. but this was very uh the fights were like very dynamic and interesting um well done and more so than the actual talky parts i was kind of skipping like well i didn't skip anything but i was kind of like losing consciousness <laughs> while i was reading the talky parts were you just like get back to the fights were you drunk or were you high or what no i just like the the espionage stuff is not my bag so Having Nick Fury and Wolverine talk about different things related to espionage and Scorpio and this and that, it's not really, it didn't really thrill me. But when they were like running around and Scorpio was shooting stuff and they were fighting, I could follow that and it was, it was interesting and I was enjoying it. Um, this is Marvel graphic novel number 50. So I feel like it's even more than 48 pages. Maybe it's only 48 pages. I think this one was like 56 pages. It felt like a lot of pages. This one and the Jungle Adventure uh, that that we also read uh, were both 56 pages. And in some areas, maybe more so in the Jungle Adventure than this, I really felt those 56 pages. <laughs> uh, the Scorpio, Ed, was it the Scorpio Connection, I think is what it's called? Yeah. Um, I, I guess in 1989 or whenever this issue came out, were there a lot of Nick Fury fans? Uh, so I don't know. I know that Nick Fury had a uh, four or six part limited series, which may have also been drawn by Howard Chaikin, where S.H.I.E.L.D. is disassembled because it turns out that the people running it are um, much like Captain America Civil War. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Which one was it? Winter Soldier? Uh, it turns out that the the people running Shield are actually bad, 
and there's like a six six part Nick Fury versus Shield limited series that was pretty cool. I think it was Howard Chaykin. I could be wrong about that. Um, and it, and it was it was pretty good. So this is kind of a follow up to that. And then shortly after that, Nick Fury gets his own series, um, which I you know is probably his third or fourth series. Um, so Nick Fury is kind of this elusive character that it, he, he's appeared in various comic books that I have read, but I'm and I'm aware that I, I feel like maybe he existed in the Silver Age of comics, but maybe that's not true. So he existed in the uh, when did the, when did Fantastic Four come out? That was the sixties. <clears throat> yeah, nineteen sixty-one or something like that. There was a Nick Fury comic in the sixties, and then there was uh, remember Jim Steranko when he did the X Men way back. Yeah. yeah. So he also did like a Nick Fury comic book, uh, like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or something like that. And that's where you get all those cool um, kind of retro sci-fi espionage kind of things. And those ones, those ones I kind of would like to go back and 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 see. I'm sure they're on Marvel Unlimited. But before that, it was Nick Fury in World War Two, where he was like, I forget what those guys were, but Nick Fury in the. The Howling um, Commandos. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. the Howling Commandos. So I guess my question is, uh, and I should probably just know this, but was so Captain America was a Silver Age comic book under the Timely Publisher, and then kind of disappeared, and then Avengers came along, and then they resurrected Captain America. Was Nick Fury also a character at that time in real life? Or was he invented to be like, oh, yeah, and he was like Nick Fury is also he's got some super soldier serum, but to a lot less degree than Captain America. That's kind of always been my assumption of Nick Fury. So the first chronological appearance of Nick Fury is Fantastic Four number 21. Okay, that's so that's actually pretty late then. So that like they probably injected him into the past in the way that you're talking about. Yeah, okay. So so he's like he's like the original retcon. Yeah, I guess so. Maybe. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say here is I I feel fairly connected to, like, Avengers, Fantastic, well, tangentially connected to Fantastic Four, Avengers, Spider-Man, and other comics of those eras. But, like, I can't think, like, I can think of many comic book covers associated with those books, even though I wasn't a direct collector of those. But I can't think of any, like, direct Nick Fury books that I've ever seen. I assume they exist. So the the ones that I mentioned are the ones that are probably the big ones. Um, other than that, I mean, for us, really, Nick Fury has just kind of and Shield have just kind of been in the background of X Men and Avengers and all that stuff. I mean, they're always there. We've just never really had to focus on them. Sure. Even in that issue of Godzilla that we covered, they were in that. <laughs> That's true. So yeah, I guess the, so. This this whole story talks about how Nick Fury and Wolverine have a past relationship from back when Wolverine was in the Canadian. Um, I can't remember what group it was, but basically the the CIA for Canada. Yeah, the the weapons program or whatever it's called. Yeah, I don't know that it's called Weapon X at this point, but. Uh, alpha base. <laughs> then he was like, I got to get back to alpha base. Does he say that in this issue? No, I think he says that in some old. Yeah. So, isn't it Department H? Yeah, or is that, yeah, is yeah. That yeah. No, I think, 
I feel like he has said that. But in this issue, they don't talk about any of that. They just talk about like my time in the Canadian service or whatever he says. So what we know about Wolverine like up to this point is that he served with the Canadian something or other as kind of like a secret agent. Mm-hmm. And and we, we get a little backstory where I think a character that they invent for this comic book is is murdered. And he was a friend of uh, Wolverine that he met on a mission where Wolverine almost got killed. This guy is uh, David Nanjiwara. And uh, he is killed by Scorpio in the very beginning. Uh, We learned that Scorpio, nobody knows that Scorpio was Nick Fury's brother, Jake Fury. Mm -hmm. So the fact that he's back is kind of freaking Nick Fury out. Um, Mm -hmm. Wolverine wants to... uh, kill Scorpio because he wants revenge for his buddy, David Nanjiwara. We get some flashbacks of how they met and stuff. And then, um, it's basically a a pretty, I mean, there's a lot of twists and turns, but it's pretty straightforward. It moves, moves pretty straightforward. Uh, they are, if you read the back of the book, like they're very Mm -hmm. proud of the story that they've crafted. (laughs) <laughs> if you read the little blurbs of like the twists and the turns and the drama. And then I feel like I don't have it up in front of me, but I feel like the price tag of this book in 1989 was $16.95. Do I have that right? No, that can't be right. This was a, this was a Marvel graphic novel. So whatever the prices of the Marvel graphic novels I, were. I, I I don't have it in front of me, but I swear it was like you. How much was God Loves Man Kills? Like $5. But that was 1982. So I guess what I'm wondering, I'm going to try to pull it up here, but at $16.95, like, was this thing hardbound? Like, with, like, a nice, like, stock cover? I guess I think it was a stock cover, but I don't think it was, like, like a hardcover. Hmm. All right. Yeah, you're right. $16.95. Wow. $16.95. That's $17 in... It, so you're looking at your... Uh, comic book shelf right now. It's 1989, 1990, right? 62 pages. Uh, and right next to it is Excalibur Mojo Mayhem for 5.95 or 4.95 or whatever it is. And then you've got this thing at 16 dollars and 95 cents. Like it had to have been like a bookshelf format, like hardbound book. Who who in 1989 is paying 17 dollars for this thing? It's a good question. I don't. I don't know. I guess. Uh... That that's like an insane amount of money. It could it could very well be that the first edition was a hardcover, and then later editions were uh, like your standard like uh, Excalibur Mojo Mayhem style thing. I feel like this was definitely reprinted a few times. Probably. You know, this is an era where uh, they're trying different things over at Marvel to see how much money they can. Get people to pay for certain things. So I, I want to. I just I just Google this really quick from the dollartimes.com. Seventeen dollars in nineteen eighty nine was the equivalent of thirty five dollars and forty four cents in twenty nineteen. Wow, that's a lot of money <laughs> for a kid. Sure. And as as a comic book collector, like I remember seeing the graphic novels when they would come out, and I'd be like, ooh. Five ninety five, four ninety five. Like that's that's my entire allowance. I could either buy, you know, five seventy five cent comic books, maybe six, or one of these graphic novels. And the value proposition, like 
it just it was a tough it was tough to buy some of these these graphic novels and then when you put 1695 on one i i wonder how well this thing sold so they are uh they're listing it on ebay as a hard back book that makes a little bit more sense so yeah it seems like it was definitely a a hard cover so yeah marvel's trying a very different uh price point and very different product here i i don't know how well it did must have done somewhat well i mean it is one of the more well-known like stories i mean and as far as the story goes it's good right like it's got twists and turns and you know we find out i'm gonna spoil it right like we find out that uh scorpio is not nick fury's brother We, we we find out that scorpio is nick fury's son so we find out first that scorpio thinks he is jake fury's son and jake fury is nick fury's brother and jake fury is nick fury's brother okay okay yep he he was the original scorpio so the mother brainwashed the son to think like you are nick fury's brother's jake fury's son and nick fury is bad so we gotta kill him you need you need to kill nick fury did was it because like Nick Fury abandoned Jake Fury or betrayed Jake Fury? Well, Jake Fury ended up committing suicide, according to this. Yeah. Um, and uh, the the mother and the son blame Nick Fury for that, and so they want they just want revenge. And it turns out that Nick Fury actually had a uh, one night stand or a little affair with the woman. Yes. Uh, and that. She could never forgive him for that. I guess he uh, so she blames Nick Fury for ruining her relationship with Jake Fury. She also seems like she was in love with Nick Fury for a little bit. and She'd never been in love with anybody before. Some of that makes sense because at the beginning of the issue, Nick Fury's like, oh, I'm old. Like he's talking to Dum Dum Dugan. And they're like, oh, we're old and we need glasses and we can't see. And it's harder to do our weights and we lose breath a lot easier. And. Oh, we're old, and then Nick Fury goes to his uh his um condo or whatever, and he's like, "Yeah, I gave up a lot of things for the perks. Got a nice place, moving up in the 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 government, but I gave it all up." Oh, well, there, there's a moment in the beginning where he's like, "Boy, I wonder what it would have been like if I had been a father." And right from that moment, you're like, "Oh, well, he's probably gonna be this guy's father." Yeah, I didn't really connect those dots until the very end, and I was like, "Oh, I see what they were setting up at the beginning." And it, again, it, it is kind of like, uh, "Who who wrote this? Whoever wrote this?" It felt felt like he was like really trying to create like this big moving story, uh, and not having that bit great of a connect. This is definitely a Nick Fury story, in my opinion, with Wolverine kind of there doing some other stuff, but I. Which led me to my original questions about Nick Fury and like his legacy because I didn't really was neat, but I didn't really care too much. Well, yeah, I guess if you don't like Nick Fury, that's a problem. And I don't <laughs> not like Nick Fury. I just I don't have that connection to Nick Fury because I'm well, not. I, I, yeah, I don't mean like you yeah, dislike Nick yeah. Fury, but you don't know Nick Fury, so it's like right. okay, well, that's just, this is an interesting story about a character that I don't really know anything about. Right, and that so that kind of led me to like you know. Were there Nick Fury stories in which, like, I could have read or whatever that that would have like gotten me to this moment and been like, oh, because as you said, it, based on everything that we learn in this issue, like we do learn that there was maybe some separating from Shield and Shield did some bad things and blah 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 blah. It seems like it 
it seems like there's a neat story there that at some point I would like to go back and, and read. I would recommend that you, you if you uh, go into Marvel Unlimited, check out Nick Fury versus S.H.I.E.L.D. It's like, I think it's like six parts, maybe even five. I don't know. But that that's a good story. And I think it's by the same team, Archie Goodwin and Howard Chaykin. What I would like to know is when does Nick Fury turn into Sam Jackson? I know a little bit about that. <laughs> is, is that a thing that actually happens? Like, I, I know that the Nick Fury that we have now is Sam Jackson, Nick Fury. But do they do a story of like that evolution? Okay, so when they remember the Ultimate Universe, yes, when they rebooted sort of the Marvel Universe, but it was in an, a parallel sort of universe, yeah. So that Nick Fury was patterned after Samuel L. Jackson, which the movies then took one step further and cast Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury. So that was kind of imprinted in the comics. Um, at some point, Nick uh, Samuel L. Jackson, Nick Fury. And the ultimate universe combines with the regular universe and yep. Samuel L. Jackson, Nick Fury goes into real world. And I think is like Nick Fury's son somehow. Um, oh. and Nick Fury, old Nick Fury is still around. I don't know why they both have eye patches. That seems like a big coincidence. <laughs> um, I'm not really sure. I mean, that's where I kind of lost it. I know that he was from the ultimate universe and now he's in the regular universe. And it had something to do with the Sovereign Seven or something like that. I don't know. There, there's, there's the story there, but I don't know. It's probably convoluted. It sounds fun. It probably. <laughs> well, in any event, that's that's how this story goes. It's it's a fun read. It's a good looking book. Uh, Archie Goodwin's a is a good writer, and um, yeah, no, that's all I got to say about that. It turns out that. Uh, David Nanjiwera was actually working with the bad guys. And so Wolverine's like, oh, I guess I won't kill Scorpio then. I'll I'll let you try to rehab your son. Weren't there? There was some serious. Uh, uh, there was a lot of language in this. There, issue. Were, there, there, there were a few uh, swears for sure. And I feel like didn't Wolverine stab somebody through the heart at some point? He stabs Nick Fury, uh, I guess, the kid's, Scorpio's uh, mom. Yeah. But he doesn't, he doesn't do it on purpose. He says she twists into his stab, and so he's not, he, he's not sure if, um, well, he says that he attempted to give her a wounding uh, stroke, but because she twists, it's a, it turns into a killing stroke. Mm. Um, but then he's like, part of me wonders if the berserker would have let that stand anyway. I probably, I may have just killed her anyhow. Right. Bottom line, like this, this isn't, uh, this isn't your typical Marvel comics affair. There's language, there's blood, there's stabbings. Yeah. This is, this is your, this is your adult attempt at serious comic bookery. It, it's, it's very good. It's a very, um, it's, it's a weird story because like, it's not, it's not a Wolverine story. Like you said, and it's it's definitely more of an espionage thing, and there's a lot of talking, and the talking is less interesting than the action, which for me is unusual. I agree. I agree. Um, overall, I would say that this issue is a little bit better than the Jungle Adventure. So the Jungle Adventure is technically the first Wolverine annual. Oh, interesting. Um, Wolverine doesn't have annuals for a while. 
so instead they have these kind of like uh one nice yeah nice nice 48 page uh nice paper um much like the excalibur thing it's essentially that format but they come out once a year and uh they never really connected anything i actually own this one um i bought it when i was buying wolverines and i never really got it or understood like what the point of it was um so i remember seeing this in the comic book shop and on the cover you have wolverine fighting apocalypse which at the time was weird because we knew in december of 1989 that Apocalypse was a X-Factor villain and Wolverine never fought a- Apocalypse and was, you know, still Fall of the Mutants dead. I didn't know who Apocalypse was. So I saw this cover and I was like, ooh, interesting. But then I would flip through because it was four and a half dollars again. As I talked about, like, that's an entire allowance, right? Plus tax. <laughs> goodness. Like, I can't even buy a soda after all of this. So I remember flipping through this book and there's there's a lot of not apocalypse and a fair amount of not wolverine to which i was like i'm not buying this so ultimately i was like yeah i passed on it and plus uh the art is mike mignola which he's not a conventional artist so i was like this art is weird the art is very good it is as, as a kid you're right i was probably like some of this tracks and others of it is kind of weird yeah because a lot, a lot of it is very what would very '90s uh, kind of Jim Lee esque. A lot of it, on the other hand, is the opposite of that. Uh, very stylish, uh, very shadowy. There's a lot. There's a lot of style and a lot of. Uh, there's a. I, I think your description of it being '90s, the beginning maybe of like a '90s style is accurate because there's a lack of detail and inking which onto itself is its own style. Mm-hmm. But it was very different from, you know, your Sylvestrian Green type books. Yeah. And it does connect to Nick Fury for somehow, uh, I guess Wolverine is searching for his lighter. <laughs> and he finds it in the Savage Land, as you do. I mean, basically the story is uh, Apocalypse sets up Wolverine to go to this island. And um, I'm... Uh, to take on a, another apocalypse, which turns out to be an apocalypse robot. He meets a woman named Gak. Yeah, and he uh, has an affair with her, I guess. Not really an affair. Pretty sure they do it. Well, yeah, he has a baby with her at the end. Yeah, so it does does that come back? Does this baby come back to haunt Wolverine? I don't think so. Okay. Um, but maybe. I mean, maybe this is... Dakin. <laughs> I mean, they don't outright say it, but at the end, they're like, a little piece of him stayed with us forever, and it's a it's a shot of Gak holding a little baby. I'm pretty sure Wolverine's got children all over the hemisphere. <laughs> Just putting a seed wherever he can. Pretty much. I mean, that's the that's the implication that you sort of get. So this issue was, to me, was, it was weird. It was, it, on, on some elements... It wanted to be an apocalypse story, but there's like this whole, like there are, the the thing's like 56 pages and there's easily 20 to 25 pages before we see apocalypse. Apocalypse is only in the last few pages. And and the rest of it is Wolverine kind of like, like the, this tribe in the Savage Land thinks that because Wolverine flies in on an ultralight. They're like, oh my gosh, he's God, he's flying in and Wolverine's looking for his lighter 
and they see the lighter it's like portable fire and they're like you're a god and then they're like now you're not a god and they can't really make up their minds and he fights like a robot tyrannosaurus rex so he takes over the tribe and he becomes sort of the leader of the tribe after after he defeats Gak in battle. Gak is, and we learn that Gak is a woman, which it works in a comic book where she's like, I'm Gak and I'm going to take my hat off. It reminded me of the twist in Solo uh, where what's her name takes off her helmet and you're like, oh, no, it's a girl or not. Oh, no. But like <laughs> they, they disguise her voice throughout it. And in Solo, it was so dumb. It was like, yeah, I knew she was a girl all along because obviously. I, I don't even, I, I don't, I don't even, I saw Solo. What What are you talking <laughs> about? Was I so oblivious? Yeah, remember the, uh, the character that was uh, constantly following them around and trying to steal all of their uh, Woody Harrelson and Han Solo's uh, things, uh, smuggler stuff, the other smuggler. No. And then at the very end, when they get to the the desert-esque planet, she takes off her helmet, and it's like, oh, my God, it's a girl. And they play, like, some sort of note. It's like, dun, dun, dun. And you're like, come on. I do remember that, but I got to be honest. So we talked about Solo on, on our podcast, as we <laughs> as we are wont to do. And I recall saying, like, I kind of liked the movie. It was like it was fun and everything, even though the, I think the entire Internet hated it. But upon retrospect, I, I know what you're talking about. And I know who you're talking about. She was like the leader of, like, the rebels. Like, we're going to start a rebellion. Don't you want to be a rebel with us? And yeah, and yeah. then Solo's like, no, I got no interest in that and blah, 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 blah. I honestly, as you're telling me this story, my recollection is that when they're on that planet, that's her first appearance. <laughs> but then the other thing I was thinking about is, like, that movie made a big deal of the Kessel Run. Yeah. I think I fell asleep through a good deal of the whole Kessel Run thing. Because really? <laughs> I remember them being like, we're going to do the Kessel Run and less parsecs. Okay, we just did the Kessel Run. But I feel like there was like a bunch of chasing and stuff that happened that I I blanked out. I don't remember any of it. It is a popcorn movie in the sense <laughs> that it is a lot of fun while it is on. <laughs> Um, and, and, and I'll still say it's one of, it's one of my favorites. Uh, but like, you know, it's, it's a movie that's most enjoyable when it's on and when it's not on, it's kind of not all that memorable. Right. So I guess all of that to be, to to be said that like when Gak like does her reveal, she takes off her, she basically gets naked in front of Wolverine. She's like, I'm a big busted, like curvy lady. And, and Wolverine's like, Oh my goodness, this has taken a turn when, the reality is, wouldn't he be like, yeah, I, I heard your voice through the mask. I, I knew your woman. It's no big deal. It's cool. Well, maybe maybe the mask uh, disguised her voice in much the same way that it disguised the voice of the lady in Solo. It's it's one of those tropes that we've seen before, but only works in comic books. Because yeah, it, do, it doesn't it doesn't really work because Wolverine obviously would know that yeah, it was a woman. But... He has he has those heightened senses. Right, he. I smell pheromones all over this place. Yeah, but although they they probably say something like I can't smell here for some reason. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. At any rate, he takes over the tribe and he starts up a relationship with Gak. At first, he says, "I'm not going to start up a relationship with you because like that's weird." But then she turns out the light, and, and she and so they kind of do anyway. Um, and then and then yeah, it's basically a jungle adventure. Wolverine hangs out in the jungle with his adventure buddies 
and they kill things, uh, monsters and dinosaurs, and they discover uh, androids, and it leads them to Apocalypse, because Apocalypse has been slowly kidnapping members of the uh, tribe that Wolverine is now a part of in order to turn them into cyborgs to murder mutants. And all of this is very complicated and uh, doesn't really matter much to the actual story. And then it turns out it's not even the real apocalypse. It's a robot of apocalypse that apocalypse had been watching just to see what it would do. And then there's a skull made of adamantium at the end. And I don't know what that's supposed to be. Uh, The apocalypse. It's weird. The apocalypse of the nineties. And this must've been a trope uh, because I played a video game. And in fact, if you dig through YouTube, you can find me playing a game boy, uh, color or advance, I can't remember which, ver- uh, I can't remember what it was called, but anyways, it was basically an X-Men video game where the whole purpose of the game is to uh, defeat Apocalypse, but then the end credit when you defeat Apocalypse is like, ha ha ha, that was a robot that I didn't want to <laughs> deal with, I wanted you to deal with it, and that's exactly that's a- how this issue ends, is where Wolverine defeats this cyborg apocalypse and then the real apocalypse is like i've been following you wolverine and i set this whole trap because i i didn't want to deal with the administrative overhead of of taking care of this rogue robot so i had you do it yep isn't that interesting (laughs) i feel like basically there wasn't a jungle adventure video game but there was a video game in which Wolverine and the X-Men had to destroy an apocalypse robot that had gone rogue. I feel like that means that that must have happened multiple times in the 90s. Or that he just took it from here. Maybe. This could be the apocalypse robot storyline. I mean, we've seen Magneto have a robot before, too. I mean, it's not out of the ordinary for villains to just randomly have robots. Dr. Doom has had many robots of himself. Yeah, it's it's just a thing. That's a comic trope. Absolutely. It's 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 weird. It's oddly this issue, this comic is oddly enduring. Like I wanted to not pay attention or like it, but it it did actually hold my attention all the way through, even with the whole apocalypse cyborg trope. It's very simple, and I think that works to its advantage. Um, and the art is, I mean. At the time, perhaps it was very different, but now that we're used to like Mac Magnola's Hellboy, and we we have we understand this style, it's interesting seeing this really early version of that style, um, and that was kind of nice. So like it it keeps it keeps you moving. Yeah. According to the internet, this is the first and last appearance of Apocalypse Robot. Really? <laughs> if you trust the internet. I I mean I do. So maybe that whole apocalypse robot trope was taken right from the pages of jungle adventure maybe and then grafted into a video game for some reason so these are kind of like when wolverine disappears in the pages of uncanny x-men he's going off to do a jungle adventure or he's going off to do a nick fury adventure it's it's kind of interesting how i don't know chronologically you could try to tie these in but Again, doesn't really matter. No. I think it's the editorial staff at this point that's more concerned about, like, well, how can Wolverine be in these places? And so that's why, chronologically, in the pages of Uncanny X-Men, Wolverine is not on the team. He's off doing other things, and this is apparently what he's doing. 
And plus, probably Chris Claremont doesn't really want to write Wolverine. I think he's more invested in some of the other characters. Yeah. Maybe. So, anyways, yeah, there you go. Three three giant-sized graphic novels. Yeah. All under an hour of Danger Room, the X-Men comic commentary podcast. We do the hard work so that you don't have to. <laughs> well, these were all good, so there was no there was no hard work. I mean, they were all very different, but they were all had their their good sides fit. I was actually worried for a second that they were going to try to do some sort of apocalypse is part of the origin of Wolverine sort of story. Um, they didn't go down that path, um, that, and that's what I was I thought the adamantium. Uh, skull that he pulls out at the end was going to be yeah did, some, like did, him he having something to do with the weapon x program or something like that i had forgotten about that but yeah wolverine at one point pulls up an adamantium skull and he's like could it be dot 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 ellipse or whatever does that go anywhere in the story i forget i it doesn't go anywhere in this story i feel like it was a breadcrumb that they mm. put in there just so that if the one day they decided to tie apocalypse to wolverine's origin they could um, I don't think they do. Yeah, I was honestly unsure of where the whole apocalypse thing was going to go. And then obviously a couple page later, pages later, they'd say he's a robot. And yeah, uh, all right, I guess that's where we're going with this whole thing. But yeah, each one of these uh, of end to end, the one that I prefer and enjoy the most was the Excalibur book. Um, the other two had definitely elements uh that I enjoyed throughout. And then some elements that I was like, all right, you can cut all this like this. Some of these could have been cut back a few pages, but overall it's a good batch of graphic novels. Yeah. It's a good time. Good time for comics. Yeah. It was fun. Yeah. Fun. Good, good, good times. Did I mention that it was fun? Uh, you, you, you did. So that's that. So this, this is like a, you know, this could be a format that we try to do sometimes. Um, kind of where we don't necessarily read through the comics if we don't feel like they're that important. Let us know what you think. Um, not that these aren't important, but just that, like... A, a page uh, by page of these three would have taken us four hours, so... Yeah, <laughs> and it doesn't... It, and then they don't really seem as far as uh, relevant to the story that we're kind of focused on. Yeah. In my opinion, these are absolutely not relevant. Uh, as fun as they are... You don't need to read these to be caught up uh, on the events of either Excalibur, X-Factor, or the Uncanny X-Men. But still, yep. they're, they're a fun thing to read. Even in terms of Wolverine, I mean, nothing really here is revealed as far as major plot points in the story of Wolverine. So uh, drop us a line. You can visit us at uh, www.xmenpodcast.com, facebook.com forward slash danger room podcast, or... Uh, Twitter at Danger Room Go. Email us, dangerroom at xmenpodcast.com, or go out to iTunes and subscribe to us. Leave us some stars, leave us some feedback, subscribe to us, or call us, uh, 501 Get X Men. That's 501 438 9636. Or go out to www.patreon.com forward slash danger room, as uh, many of you have already done, and we definitely appreciate the support that we are getting from uh, those of you that have decided to subscribe to us via the Patreon page. And our theme music is provided by Laszlo Hollyfeld. And be like, that's it for this uh, for this week, Adam. Yeah, man. I got nothing else. Good times. So until next time. 
This is uh, this is Jeremy. My name's Adam. And the danger room is closed. <laughs>